Equality of educational opportunity has long been a stated goal of education in this province. The polka dot door, the polka dot door, let's peep through the polka dot door. Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome once again to Saturday Night at the Movies. My name is Elwi Yost. Today's special, shout it loud and clear, today's special. For two decades, polling wizard Alan Gregg conducted interviews with some of the best-known authors, artists, actors, and thinkers in the world. Everyone from President Jimmy Carter to Russell Peters, from Richard Dawkins to Christopher Hitchens. You've gone as far as to say that uh, he should be put on trial as a war criminal. I mean, given his icon status as uh, a brilliant statesman, I mean, this is, seems outrageous. I mean, what, what's your purpose here? What are you trying to do in this book? trying to narrow a gap that when you look at it is a very conspicuous one indeed in the American public discourse. Alan Gregg in Conversation was one of those shows that respected its audience and made you think. Today on TVO at 50, we look back at some of the program's most memorable interviews. How long you been out of the house for? A year it has been. <laughs> no, seriously. It's hilarious. Well, a and year? And, and COVID, you can imagine. You, it, it just stalled everything. A production stopped everything. Then social distancing. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a little bit bonkers. So um, it has been, it has been a lot. So we're not, uh, we're moving back into a house. It's not completed. They just have the basement sort of finished. There's walls and floors. And I said to Steve, <laughs> Um, well, that's your said, Steve, your husband Steve. Yes, not my me. husband Steve. Yes. Yeah. So Steve said, oh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like camping. I was like, I hate camping. Um, you, know, and, you know, people, I told my grandmother when, you know, from Hong Kong, she said, what are you doing? I told her about what camping was, you know, sleeping outdoors, you know, cooking over fire. She's like, in Hong Kong, we call that being homeless. Why would you choose to do that? <laughs> and so, I, I don't think your grandmother has completely captured the spirit of the thing. No, I, I really don't think so. So, you know, <laughs> such is life. But I'm going to go back and we'll see how long I last. If not, uh, then I'll move back up here to Richmond Hill to hang out with my brother. <laughs> so we'll, Very we'll good. see. We'll see. We'll see. Indeed we shall. Well, let me formally introduce Becky Fong. That's whose voice you've been listening to, who was a producer on a show alternatively called Greg and Company, and then Alan Greg in Conversation With... Uh, which aired for more than a decade in the 1990s and 2000s. And uh, Baxter, you sound like you got your hands full. So maybe we should just dive right in as opposed to my saying, how are you? Because it sounds like you're uh, up to your, uh, uh, an expression I'm not allowed to use, up to your, you know yes. what, and alligators. I, eyeballs, yeah. For sure. Eyeballs, that's what I meant. Yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> well, let's start here. We have to remember that we've got a lot of either younger people listening or new Canadians who may not go back to, you know, the heyday of Alan Gregg. So should we start there? Who was Alan Gregg? Well, Alan, you know, to, to kind of summarize Alan, um, yeah, it's a, that's a pretty big task. Uh, one of the most curious minds uh, that I've ever met um, as a journalist and beyond. So Alan started his days actually uh, working um, as a pollster. And, you know, he worked uh, with Brian Mulroney and uh, really spent a lot of his time and uh, put his expertise into, um, you know, into politics. And then I believe he decided that it would be interesting to, uh, to jump into television. Um, one of the things that he, he always said to me was that you know, he wanted to get beyond, you know, the, the sound bites or the quick answers that he wanted to, 
you know, to have a real conversation. I, I guess that's how it all started. So, um, so yeah, it was, it, it was a fabulous, uh, I think, platform to have really in-depth conversations. And uh, certainly it was uh, a lot of fun. Well, I should just say another thing about, because we're going back 40 years now when he was involved in politics, or at the beginning anyway, and, and he was kind of an enfant terrible in the conservative circles, because <laughs> here was this young kid with an earring and long hair, and he wore, you know, blue jeans and leather jackets, and he, you know, like he wasn't exactly representative of the Tory core, as they say, uh, but he was very good at, at um, he was very good at what he did. I mean, he was clearly one of the leading pollsters in the country, and I don't know, did you guys ever talk about why he why he sort of wanted to make this move into media and into interviewing? I think that um, the thing about um, being in polling is that you're very good at listening. You know, you're really good at, you know, taking the pulse, um, spending time listening to, um, you know, not just, you know, what's in the boardrooms, but, uh, you know, Main Street, right? And I think that that was something that really drove, uh, drove Alan. I know that he was always curious. I don't think there was a single guest that i ever booked for him that he said, well, you know, why did you book this person? He was endlessly curious um, and and uh, a great conversationalist. I remember, you know, from very early days, um, he wanted to, you know, we used to struggle about the questions because he wanted to ask, you know, really, really detailed question, questions. And I think that that was always a challenge, you know, especially when you get in the edit suite, you know, you've got you know, a, a lot to cut out. Um, I think that Alan really understood that um, you need to give people time and space to have those conversations, to share their thoughts, their experiences, and their ideas. And I think that um, being a pollster um, was, you know, really a great background. Um, I never asked him why he left um, polling, um, but I think that, you know, it, he he certainly enjoyed, and I felt as his producer, that he really enjoyed um, sitting down um, across the table and really creating a safe space and inviting space for people to share their experiences and thoughts. Yeah, we should explain. This was not a studio-based show. He actually set up in a, like, I think it was on the upper floor of a restaurant or something like that. It, they it had was. It all, yeah, they had it all set up there. And wh- who, who were the kinds of guests that you would have on that program? My goodness. Um, listen, we, we, you know, we, we interviewed some of the, I think the, the brightest minds in the world. And that was the, I guess that was the intent of the show, right? To, to bring the greatest minds and thinkers and authors um, to the Ontario public. So we had everybody from, you know, premiers, uh, former premiers, prime ministers, um, you know, we, I think we interviewed Jean Chrétien. We also interviewed uh, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Uh, we inf- interviewed uh, people who were on the cutting edge of innovation technology, so people like Douglas Copeland. But I understand recently you've kind of tried to distance yourself a little bit from, from that actual definition of a generation. Well, the whole notion that there was ever a Generation X to begin with was always sort of silly. Um, thinkers like um, Susan Sontag. So the list goes on, but I think that it was, we always said it was, it was an eclectic mix of, of some of the world's greatest thinkers. Now tell us more about your job. What was your title and what did you do? So I, um, I was uh, a producer on the show and um, really it was to, it was the greatest job in the world. I got to read great books and um, produce uh interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world. And so my job was really to um, to you know, pay attention to what was happening, trends, 
interesting, um, interesting events and people. And so we would bring that to Alan. So um, the senior producer, Nancy Hawkins, and I worked very closely together. Um, and she was actually, she was the original producer and took it all the way from, from day one, all the way to our very last day of taping. And she, um, so I would pitch stories to her, I pitch interviews to her, and then we would um, take it to Alan and he would, you know, for the most part, he was, he was very open. As I said, you know, he, he never really said no to anything because he was endlessly curious. And, and I think that the challenge for us was because he was very busy is not just, you know, who, you know, who we wanted to interview, but who could fit into, um, you know, his, his very, very busy schedule, because you would remember, uh, Steve, that he also was on the at issue panel at uh, on CBC National, right. And so it was always a challenge fitting um, these really fabulous interviews in between his taping schedule at CBC, as well as his other consulting work that he did. Um, but it well, was, that was uh, it. He had other yeah. businesses on the side as well. And I, and yeah. I think I, I, I'm like, I don't think it, while, while he was at TVO, he was doing the Tragically Hip, but I think he was managing them for a time as well. He absolutely was. Um, yes, I think that predated his time at TVO. But, you know, mm-hmm. a man of many interests and talents. And um, and uh, as I said, like, uh, you know, he he really was just very curious and interested in people. And uh, that's why I think the, the show was a great, uh, you know, a great platform. So, uh, okay, if I hear this right, then he had the opportunity I mean, did he have the final say-so on guests? Like you and Nancy would come to him and he could either say yay or nay? Yes, yes, he, he could say, you know, um, of course, like, you know, we, you know, when we were part of uh, Studio Two, like, of course, we would take that up to the executive producer. But really, um, you know, we felt that for that kind of long form interview, he needed to be really engaged. Um, And I think there were times where he wasn't really sure, Um, you know, we had to do a lot of, you know, convincing, we had to to be very prepared as to why it was that um, it was an important voice um, that we needed to, to hear uh, from the show. And, um, but he, you know, often, you know, at the end of the day, he would say, you know, I absolutely trust uh, your judgment on it. And, um, you know, uh, as long as his research facts were, were really, um, you know, thorough, he actually, he used to joke all the time. He said his favorite part about the, the, about the job was actually reading the research to get to know a person before he interviewed them. And so hmm. um, certainly as long as his research facts were thorough, we had done our meeting ahead of time. Um, he was, you know, he was a great sport about it. Well, I got to say, I'm a little bit jealous because neither on Studio Two nor on the agenda did I ever have a veto over anybody who could come on the program. I got told what to do. <laughs> if, he, if he had the final say so, I'm very impressed with that. Um, well, I have to say that was a little bit as a producer, because, you know, if we're taping with someone for 45 minutes, Steve, you know, that if you're not really engaged there, you know, that can be quite challenging, both for the producer, the host, and not always the best result for, for the listener or viewer, right? I, so I, I totally um, get it. Was, yeah, it, uh, you know, so I, I think we sort of did that uh, for our own benefit as well, because that's the, the, the most challenging thing is to cut an interview, to cut something down, to, to package something when it's not, uh, you know, when the, the, the conversation isn't flowing, right? So. Gotcha. Now, all these years later, the truth will out. Okay, Baxter, here we go. You guys interviewed a lot of authors. And sometimes, you know, you'd be doing two or three books a week. Yes. Alan didn't read the books, did he? Well, Alan, let's put it this way. Alan read um, as much of the book as we could, you know, uh, as he could. Um, I still remember uh, it was um, 
Conrad Black, actually. Um, he wrote a book, uh, I think it was FDR. And uh, Oh, yes, it, that short little pamphlet that was only about 1,200 pages. I remember it well. It you know, almost broke my back carrying it back and forth from the the, the house to, you know, and I used to actually, um, I used to walk to work. So carrying that thing while I was walking was, you know, quite a workout. And I remember that, um, you know, he really, you know, he, he, he would think, you know, he had a very thorough research package, which was great, but he would he would go through and and read certain sections, you know, perhaps not cover to cover because, as you said, like sometimes we have you know three interviews in one day. But I will tell you, uh, I will not name names, but we had a certain uh, intern who thought she would be quite clever and uh, just pull quotes, random quotes, from you know different articles instead of reading the whole book, and. Alan totally called her out. It was it was just amazing because he would go back to the text, back to the um, to to the book itself, and cross reference. And so you know he really he was very very much engaged. I would have to say though, I never had to twist his arm when it came to perhaps you know political history. Most of the nonfiction authors um, that was you know he he was certainly very much interested in that. Um, Fiction, I don't, yeah, fiction was a little bit more challenging for us because, you know, sometimes it's about the whole body of work of the author. So um, I remember we interviewed Toni Morrison and uh, I said, you know, Alan, this is like such a big get. One of the few, I think it was the only Canadian interview she did. And I said, I, I think we're going to have to go through all of her you know, major works. And he said, we have to read all of them. I said, well, well I will, <laughs> you know, we'll make sure your research pack, um, you know, uh, includes, you know, summaries and whatnot. But, you know, you do have to read the current one. It was a very short one. I think it was love. Very, very short book. Um, but yeah, Alan, certainly uh, he loved he loved the research. And so certainly um, it was a joy for me because oftentimes if you're slaving over, you know, um, you know, research pack after research pack. I would not say that this is the case for you, but you know I have worked with other uh, hosts who perhaps do not read your uh, research packs uh, quite as thoroughly as as Alan did. <laughs> well, okay, let's. Let, I really want to get into the nitty nitty gritty dirt here. So, sure. One 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 of the things, of course, that producers and hosts um, spend a significant amount of time on is going over questions. You know, and I, I guess traditionally, what happens is a producer will you know put out a first draft of questions and then. And then you go to it, hammer and tong. When you two did that, uh, and you know you wanted him to ask a question, and maybe he didn't want to ask it, or he wanted to change it, and you thought it ought to be the same. How did you guys uh, fight that out? Well, I have to say that um, <clears throat> Nancy Hawkins had a very special gift. Um, first of all, they started the show together, so um, they had a real natural um, way of working together. And there were times when she knew where to push. And other times she knew how to back off. And so sometimes, um, you know, he would say, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to ask it that way. Or why are we asking that question? Um, and so she would talk him through it. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's also like a matter of wearing someone down. And, you know, um, it's, it's, um, it was certainly the cut and thrust of, um, you know, the script, the final script, the final questions, it was, it was a real challenge, but that's something that um, I really have to, you know, tip my hat to, to Nancy. She knew Alan, she knew how, she knew his voice very well. She knew um, where he would lean to, what his natural follow-ups were. Um, am I going to say that he always followed our questions? Absolutely not. Were there times <laughs> where, 
were there times when he uh, perhaps pretended like he couldn't hear us in his ear? Perhaps. I have no definitive <laughs> proof of that. But, um, you know, Alan, um, you know, he he certainly listened to people very intently. Um, and then just sometimes he, I remember one time he said to me, oh, the conversation just took me that way. So like, what can you say to that, right? <laughs> the the follow-up question, Becky, that she wrote, just, it didn't seem to make sense at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, on behalf of all hosts, I, I do think that producers advise but hosts ultimately have to decide whether, I think he's right, you know, ultimately yeah. the host decides whether whether to ask it or not and whether the conversation lends itself to having it asked at that moment, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's easier for me, Becky, to get away with that because, of course, uh, all the interviews I'm doing are live to tape and we don't, you know, you guys were you guys were in the field. If you wanted him to ask another question that he hadn't asked, you know, you stop the camera, you talk to him, you say, we need to ask this, and and then you either have a scene or you don't. Did that ever happen? Um. So, well, yes, we, we did ask him to ask questions sometimes um, because, again, because it didn't quite go the way we thought or perhaps um, the, the guest at that moment in time didn't seem to, you know, um, to be able to, to wrap their minds around that particular question. So we did do some re-asks. Um, I only recall once. Um, I think in all my years of working with him, and that was almost nine, it was almost 10 years I worked with him, that he said, well, I, I said, you know, can we do a re-ask? And because we were really, you know, it was a, a tough interview. Um, he just said, no, I don't think so. And you know what, <laughs> at a certain point in time, you know, the man, I mean, let's be perfectly honest. I, I think it was the third or fourth interview of the day. And so at a certain point in time, you know, perhaps it was, the, it was, I think it was the last interview. You have to know when to let it go because you're not going to get, you're not going to get what you're looking for anyways. Right. So right. good call um, on your I, part. Yeah. Now, Alan wasn't a journalist per se, so he was not beholden to, you know, the sometimes strict rules of journalism. He could freelance a little bit more. He could certainly give opinions if he wanted to. How different or how did that different approach manifest itself when he did interviews as opposed to when, uh, you know, a straight news person would do interviews? I think that, um, you know, Alan's approach was really, um, you know, given the name of the the title of the, the show, was it was all about conversation. So there was a lot of back and forth. Um, and really, Alan felt that he wasn't there to simply just um, get answers from people right? He felt that it was important for him to provide an opportunity for people to share ideas um, because we had, so for instance, we had a child soldier um, on uh, Ishmael Bay, I believe it was. Oh, I remember and him well. Yeah, You remember him. I know you also interviewed him. And, um, you know, it was really, it was very, very difficult because um, I think it, because I think both you and Alan um, interviewed him, they were quite different interviews, right? Um, as they because, should be. Yes, as they should be. And um, and I think that, you know, for Alan, it was really much more, um, it was how he felt about things. It was um, very much more of a narrative approach to it. And I think that, you know, you know could we have asked him about, you know, uh, the political side of things? We could have, but we also decided that, you know, Alan isn't a journalist. And so therefore, um, he doesn't have to cover that ground, right? Um, he can focus on eliciting other experiences that are perhaps not related to that. 
Now, at this point, you're separated f from your family, and you and the other boys are basically alone and, and isolated, so watching all this carnage occur around you. How did you survive at this point in time? Well, you know, we, we basically, we, we would run from this war. We would run, we go to another one town, one village, and then we try to find whatever food we could find. You know, if, if while we were there, oftentimes a day or less, or maybe even when we get there, we'll be attacked again by another advancing group of rebels, and we will continue running, you know, stepping over dead bodies. Sometimes people struck next to you and killed with bullets as you're running. So this basically became our constant life, just running away from the war and the uncertainty of not knowing what will happen next was too severe. And we, we did have a wonderful opportunity because we were, we were a tape show, right? Um, that we could take, um, take a moment to breathe. We also interviewed uh, Romeo Dallaire. But when it really hit me was when I saw this, this uh, youth movement of a political party slowly getting converted into a militia. And you know we could have gone we could have gone another way as well, but um, it was we really very much focused on the impact on him of his experiences and what he felt um, should be done, rather than um, you know having him comment on the political landscape or environment at the time um, and, and things that perhaps you know someone with um, a journalism background would be expected to ask. So that that's where we had a little bit more space, right? Right. You had literally hundreds of guests by the time the show ran its course. Did you have a favorite? Oh my goodness. Um, there were so many. I have to say the the um, the highlight for me was actually former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Um, he was probably like the biggest get of my career. And um, he was so generous. I still remember that, um, you know, I was briefed on all of the security uh, protocols and details and whatnot. And and I remember we did it actually in front of a live audience. Um, we did it uh, during the Toronto International Film Festival. We did it in front of a live audience. Film and, Festival or Authors Festival? Uh, it was to the Toronto Film Festival, actually. Oh, okay. And um, he, he came in because he was actually, if you might remember, um, he had a book that was coming out as well as a documentary several oh, years the doc, ago. That's right as well. Yes, that's right. That's yep. right. So, um, so it was actually him and his wife, Rosalind Carter. So the two of them, um, he insisted that we, um, we interview both of them. And I still remember I was waiting to greet him and he walked up, um, he walked up to me and I, you know, I, I didn't know. So he, he said, hello. And I took a step forward and I put my hand up to shake his hand. And all these security guards, they just descended on me. And he said, now, now, Back off, boys. She's fine. And um, I just. No thought, kidding. That really happened, eh? It really happened. And uh, he had just, you know, um, uh, he, he just had such humility. And I remember uh, one of the questions we asked him, you know, was really about um, the, the kind of the ebbs and flows of being in politics. And he said, oh, yes, I remember, you know, when I was involuntarily retired. Instead of going on the lecture circuit and, and putting more and more money in a bank account, uh, what Rosa and I do is to try to help people in 35 nations in Africa have a better life. And, and that, that's to me, is, is the most gratifying thing we could do. And uh, I've just finished my 24th book, and I still get the President's retirement pay since I was, <laughs> since, <laughs> since I was involuntarily retired in 1980. I thought that was really great. And he, 
he just, um, he really made us think um, about public service and what that meant. I was really thrilled. Um, so many really great, great authors, but he, he's a real standout. Did you work on the show right to the very end? I did. I did. I, um, okay. I actually... Then, then I got to ask this question. Uh, you know, budget cuts are a fact of life when you work in public television. And uh, Alan Gregg and his show got canceled at a certain point because of budget cuts. And if you were with him at the time... Uh, how did he take the news? So we didn't actually, uh, we, we heard the news. I heard the news through Nancy and it's, it not, it's not as if it was like a huge, it's sort of like an open secret, right? I mean, you know that, um, every show has, you know, it's life and, um, you know, having done studio two and then the agenda that sometimes, you know, shows get canceled or shows, they evolve, right? They and so begin and doing, they end. Every show, except do. Meet the Press. Meet the Press oh, is it, still on after seventy-five years, but everything else begins and ends. Absolutely, um, I think that it was um, every year. Like I, I took every season as a gift. I have to tell you, when Studio Two ended, um, that was actually a, a little bit harder for 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 the team. It was um, we thought you know we're sort of homeless, right? We we don't have um, we, we're not. We're not connected to the the um, the show, the anchor. Um, so what are we going to do? And so we really felt that um, it was it was it was tr- challenging for the the show to kind of re- rethink itself and reimagine what the show would be like. So that was really tough. But from that point, I think for six seasons, I think we stayed on. After that, um, it was a gift. Like every year was a fight to say, but look, you know, uh, we get, we've got these really fabulous, um, you know, uh, people coming up. And so one of the games I tried to play was when it was close to the end of the season, I would like, I would bank a whole bunch of, you know, other interviews, Steve. So then I thought, well, they can't cancel the show if I've already got like three or four shows in the can. And if I devious one, look at you. And if it was that I booked a whole bunch of really high profile people, you know, that might be difficult to cancel, you know, um, Salman Rushdie or, or, or someone who's like very prominent. And so that was, it was, um, it was a challenge uh, for us, but we knew that every year that we had was a real gift and we fought for it. And we were one of the first ones, I think we started um, a YouTube channel. It was really a pilot and it was it was also that I think, I think just doing that and we did like web exclusives to try to, um, you know, to try to maintain our funding. So yeah, it was at the end. Um, I, I remember Nancy said to me, you know what, you know, this is, this has happened and we weren't shocked, disappointed, a little sad. Um, but when I talked to Alan, he was, you know, very circumspect. He said, listen, we lasted like, like, 18 years. I think it was almost 18 years from the very beginning. That's so a heck of a good that, run in television. My goodness. Absolutely. And I will tell you, Steve, so I was the last, um, I was the last employee there actually. So everybody, um, <clears throat> they decided, you know, they, we had different end dates. So I stayed on six weeks later because I wanted to finish, you know, those shows in the can that I had. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to put those to, to bed and, and I'll tell you that, um, I got a call and then a letter. So oftentimes people would send us letters and it was often on, you know, um, really like lovely, you know, uh, lovely paper. And, 
and um, sometimes with fruit baskets. So, you know, they tended to be a little bit older. Our audience skewed 55 plus. Um, and we never chased the 25 year olds. You know, we just thought, you know, if they're interested in Douglas Copeland or Salman Rushdie or, you know, that they would find us um, online. That's how we tried to reach that audience. But um, on my very last week, I got a call from a woman and um, she said to me, um, I asked to be put through to Alan Gregg's show because I understand that it's being canceled. And I said, well, yes, you're speaking to the, you know, the, the only one standing. I said, we are going to be wrapping. And she said, so I wanted to let you know that it has been such a gift and a privilege for me to watch your show over the past 18 years, because um, I grew up, um, you know, in a farming community. I went to a one room schoolhouse and I had to help on the farm. So I never went to school past, you know, elementary school. But she said, but watching your show over the past 18 years, what an education that's been. And so, you know, uh, while it's sad that shows end, um, we know that we made a difference and we're really proud of the work. And when I spoke to Alan, um, he said, well, you know, um, it's, 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 um, it's not great and it's too bad, but, you know, we need to celebrate. And so uh, we actually went back to, um, to Granos. Um, so that was actually one of the first locations where Alan Gregg filmed and, um, Italian so restaurant in Midtown Toronto, just near Young absolutely, and Eglinton. Absolutely. And it was a place, um, that, you know, um, it was a place that was very near and dear to our hearts. And so, uh, Roberto, he, he created a special menu for the Alan Gregg team. And that is how we, um, ended the show, you know, uh, raising a toast and uh, sharing some good food and, and uh, a few laughs and uh, great memories. That's beautiful. That's Becky Fong, who produced Alan Gregg during the 1990s and 2000s. Baxter, it's uh, great to hear your voice again, and you take care, and good luck with the house, eh? Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. And that's it for us. This episode of TVO at 50 was produced by Katie O'Connor and Matthew O'Mara. Editing by Donnie Swanson. Research help from Kate Petch and Carol Elder. Our production support coordinators are Jonathan Hallowell and Nikki Ashworth. We want you to share your TVO memories. What does TVO mean to you? Record yourself and email the audio to us using the address tvo at 50 at tvo.org. That's TVO, A-T, and the numbers 50 at tvo.org. And we'll play these on future episodes. Next time on the podcast... We had Sue Johansson on from time to time take phone calls about sex. I remember an older man phoning in and he said to her he was he was disappointed because he'd been married to his wife for many years. They had a great loving relationship, but in the last few years for health reasons and otherwise, he said, I am unable to function in that way with my wife. And she just cut him off and she said, sir, do you have 10 fingers and a tongue? And the camera cut to me and my eyes were bugging out of my head and I was trying not to look at her with alarm. And you know what? Uh, they quickly cut back to her because he said, he laughed and he said, well, yes. And she went on to describe the things that he could do with his wife instead of just sexual intercourse. And so that for me was kind of, that's what more to life was. I'm Steve Pakin. Bye-bye.